understanding union with Christ, why it isn't just religious pretending. What does it mean? What, it is Paul's favorite image. John uses it a great deal in pictorial language, like a branch abiding, a vine, branch abiding in a vine and, and uh, living water consumed and bread eaten. Paul uses uh, the term in Christ, Christ in you, He uses those over and over and over again. And yet I think if you ask the average Christian, what does it mean to say you are in Christ? Does it mean, does it mean behaving the best I can as though Christ lived in me? I think a lot of people would would kind of come down to that. I took two messages to talk about why union with Christ is more real than that and how it works. This morning's topic is, why do I feel more united to Adam than I do to Christ? Two texts, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49, and then we'll be in Romans 8, 18 to 25. This is from the English Standard uh, Version. Thus it is written, this is Paul speaking, quote, The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. In other words, Adam comes first, Christ second. The first man, that's Adam, the Genesis 1, 2, 3. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven calling Christ man because of the incarnation and the actual humanity that he took. 48. As was the man of dust, so also we, those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. This. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust... We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So this is Adam. This is Christ. And both of them are affecting of who we are and what we are like. The next text. Romans 8, 18 to 25. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's an interesting phrase. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know... Change slides, Don. That the whole creation has been groaning together in, in the pains of childbirth, he says. Particular kind of pain. Remember that. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have... The first fruits of the Spirit. Grown inwardly as we eagerly 
wait eagerly for the adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. Next Sunday night, we will finish this series. And I want to look at being in Christ and what adoption means. Next Sunday morning, we will finish the series, Atheists Are Made, Not Born. I'll switch the two next week. But both series will wrap up next week. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he sees? Well, nobody. If you've got it, you don't have to hope for it anymore. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with, with patience. I took quite a bit of time in this series developing the idea that the incarnation of God the Son in the man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that was an event that extends powerful effects in two directions. You can get those messages online because I just can't review all of them uh, this morning. The incarnation of Christ affects our union with Christ in two directions. First, it unites the sinless, incarnate Messiah with the total reality of Adam and his sin and the corporate fallenness of humanity. So the incarnation works backwards, linking up with the beginning of human history. I say it reverently, but Jesus doesn't come just as a picture of what we ought to be, though he is that for sure. But he comes assuming the nature. We're coming up to Christmas. He comes He comes, he is sent, he is given. A number of words that the New Testament uses. He comes assuming the full nature, the the broken personhood of each one of us in our sin. Though, Though absolutely sinless, he assumes my total fallenness. And he carries it in perfect obedience that I failed to give all the way to the cross. So so the humanity Jesus took to the cross, here's my conviction, the humanity Jesus took to the cross is exactly the humanity of Don Horbin. Don Horbin at his worst. Jesus wasn't just pretending to be like me. He was me. In his humanity. And that's the only reason Paul can say that he and Don Horbin was crucified with Christ. It's not symbolism. He he tied himself to all that I was in Adam. And he sinlessly and obediently took that to the cross. And suffered and died with all the brokenness that I am in my own person. He carried that in his sinless life. It's striking. It's striking. The saving work of God the Son. Please 
Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. But the saving work of God the Son doesn't begin on the cross. It climaxes there to be sure. But it has its, its visible beginning in the physical humanity of the second Adam. God the Son. This is where we were united. Tied to the man, Jesus Christ. So his work for me has its roots in my nature being in him. He didn't just die unjustly for himself. I took two sermons unpacking all of that. I said the incarnation extends the effects of our union with Christ in two directions. First, it works backwards into real history, right into the fall of Adam. But secondly, the incarnation presses into the future because the incarnate Christ is also the creator of the universe. And he is working on a brand new creation. All that Adam lost and more will be restored by the second Adam in a new creation that is yet to come. And he takes me with him because I'm united to him. He takes me with him into that. His mission extends beyond mere forgiveness. Way beyond mere forgiveness. In our union with him, we are carried with him into the beginning of this new creation. The original creator is now recreating. At this moment, there is exactly one place. There is one actual physical place in this whole universe where the new creation has taken effect. And that is the risen and ascended body of the man, Christ Jesus. And that's why Paul says, that's the first fruits. But here's the thing. I am in him. Really in him. And so the one who comes and dies on the cross takes my fallen nature is also the one who created the world and is recreating it. His death provides pardon for our guilt. He dies a real death. And because we are one with Christ, we die with him. That is what Paul means when he boldly says he was crucified with Christ and the Bible makes it plain that Father God has eternally predetermined, predestined. That's not, a, that's not a bad word. We believe in predestination. It's a New Testament word that mankind's pardon would be accomplished in no other way than in Christ. You can read that if you want in Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, see, in Christ. With every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
God blesses us in Christ. Three, chooses us in Christ. Four, predestines us in Christ. Five, adopts us in Christ. Six, God has no other way for redeeming or recreating except through union with Christ, which has its beginning in the incarnation. All who will be redeemed will be so in no other way. God has predestined it to be so. But the point here is we're not just united with Christ in his death. His resurrection, his ascension, pull us into the new creation. When you read the New Testament, you'll see this over and over again. It it labors to make me understand that it's not religious poetry, that something actual and real is being described. Let me quickly go through some texts. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, For as by a man came death... Who's that? Adam, right? He's he's continuing that, that parallel. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Look at Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The same thought. I don't want to bore you with this. Colossians 3, 1 to 4. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. All of those references, many more, you could pile them up. They emphasize the the inseparability of our union with Christ. The union isn't finished at the cross. Note all the unity words. In him, in Christ, in God, with him, with Christ. And and the point is, just as surely as our connection with Adam in the fall is actual and affecting. We feel it. So our union with Christ in his death and then his exaltation is just as actual and affecting. So, so, my future, how can I say it? At the right hand of God in glory is just as actual and certain as God the Son's place at the right hand of the Father in glory. Because the incarnation has never been undone. I am still in him. And this is why, by the way, This is why all all of the tenses, Paul can erase all the tenses of past 
present, and future when considering the accomplishments of Christ on our behalf. You notice it when you look at verses like these familiar ones. Romans 8, 28, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Each aspect of my union with Christ is as certain as any other. Tenses become irrelevant. Let me me try and make it a little more... um, Shocking. The man Christ Jesus, the man Christ Jesus is just as much me at the right hand of the Father as he is God the Son at the right hand of God the Father. Does that make you like fall off your chair? I'm, 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 I am in him. I said there'd be this preamble and then two points that I want to wrap up. Let me just, here's why this matters. When you lose track of this idea of being in Christ, what happens is, we don't mean to, but... If you, if you think about it, you see this over and over again. What happens is, is we, we start to think of the benefits we receive from Christ apart from union with him. And, and, and so someone, someone may be rather careless in their Christian life comes and they come to Jesus. And they've learned this since they were little kids. And they say they're sorry and they ask Jesus, ask Jesus to give them forgiveness. See? And Jesus says, you need forgiveness. Here, here is some forgiveness. And he, and he, there, I forgive you. And they say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for this forgiveness. And off they go. But if they don't understand that you don't get forgiveness from Jesus, you are forgiven by being in Christ. Then what's going to happen is they will just come and take forgiveness when they need it. I went to my dad. Can I have my dollar allowance? And, he, and he's there, and I'm here, and he gives it to me. But you don't get forgiveness from Jesus the way Santa gives Christmas presents. You get forgiveness from Jesus by being in Christ, the atoning one. And so you can't just take pardon and live life on your terms. Because pardon comes from being in the one who lived sinlessly and died on the cross, bearing God's wrath for my sin. And I'm covered as I am in Christ. But you can't just take the gift apart from the relationship. Am I making that clear? It's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. Now that brings two questions. Point number one. Remember, don't panic. We're we're like 75% finished. I lie about other things, too, just so you know. Point number one, question. Why don't I feel as tied to Christ as I feel still tied to Adam? And the answer is in that text that I read. 
1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. God created him. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man, that's Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. God formed him from the dust. The second man, Christ, in his incarnation, from heaven. As was the man of dust... So also are those who are of the dust. We're we're like Adam. That's what he's saying. Like Adam. And there's there's an an inward likeness to Adam. And we die like Adam. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man from heaven, so that's Christ, so also are those who are of heaven. And that's the part that makes us go, well, man, I'd like to, I'd like to be like, like Jesus. Wouldn't you? Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And the important words for our consideration now are those closing words of 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And and Paul's point seems to be the effect of our unity with Adam, the effect of our unity with Adam is, is it's already manifested. There's nothing else to unfold. The fruit of Adam's original sin has already sprouted and bloomed in our lives. It's it's a past reality with all of its present consequences now revealed in our lives. And that's why Paul says we have borne the image of the man of dust. We, We know what that's like. We lose our tempers. We can be materialistic. We can be proud. We can be unteachable. We can be vain. We can be forgetful of God. We can be angry with people. We can be filled sometimes with vengeance. So nobody really has to walk into this sanctuary and prove to us that we've got Adam as an ancestor. Are we all agreed on that one? And if that brings any doubt to your mind, drive out to the cemetery. We have the image of Adam. And it's right here. And it's fully bloomed. We have to, in fact, work to die to self, crucify self when we follow Jesus. It doesn't just flow out of us naturally all the time. Now, it's not the same with the fruit of our union with Christ. This reality has only sprouted in the risen body of Christ Jesus, God the Son. So that's why in in highly intentional words, Paul calls the risen Christ the first fruits of God's resurrecting work. The, The full harvest of the new creation, well, 
It's still waiting manifestation. So the seed of the new creation, all that we actually have in union with Christ, the seed at time, well, it seems less weighty than the full-grown downward drag of my union with Adam. Our second opening text describes with precise honesty what this present condition actually feels like. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is is to be revealed to us. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us, by the way, what we're going to be. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself, that's that new creation, it's going to come. It started now in the resurrected, ascended body of Jesus, and it's going to consume the whole earth. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That's what you feel about your unity with Adam. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. Remember I said to remember this phrase, the pains of childbirth. Until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit... Grown inwardly while we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So just to be clear, there is a present new creation and a not yet new creation. There is the new creation manifested in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. There is the process. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, new creation. The new has come, but it's not fully manifested yet. We wait, but we don't wait without hope. And that leads to my closing point. I want to talk to you about how I read a well-loved passage of Scripture differently from the way I once did. Here's one of the best-loved Bible verses, maybe next to John 3.16. One of the best-loved verses in the whole church. And here's how I don't think I properly understood it. Here's the text. The text is Romans 8, 35 to 39. My dad used to quote this all the time. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he talks about this wonderful certainty that he has. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We love the certainty, don't we, of Paul's words. There's no doubt in this text. And and it kind of helps purge doubts from our hearts, just reading it. So far, so good. Nothing can ever separate me from God's love. That's not all there is in that text. I mean, the words are very um, planned, careful, theological words. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it's those last five words, I think, that carry all the freight. The reason Paul is so certain nothing can separate us from the love of God is that that love of God is all tied up so firmly with the doctrine of union with Christ. In other words, consider how much Father God loves the Son. How committed is the Father to the Son? The Son who perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. Not one other person ever has. The only man who was a covenant keeper before a holy God. We're all covenant breakers. The Son who came all the way down, taking on himself the full weight, the full reality of broken humanity... The son who lived a perfect earthly life, fully aligned with the father's will at every point. The son who could not be held by death because death had no legitimate hold on him. Consider how the father loves the son. And now, I am now in that son. He is still the man Christ Jesus. He is still united to Don Horban as the man, Christ Jesus. I am in him. And because the incarnation can't be undone, can't be diluted in any way, I am eternally inseparable from Christ Jesus. Nothing in all creation can ever change the depth of the Father's love for the Son, and nothing in all creation can ever change the depth of the Father's love for Don Horban, who is one with the Son. So here's how my understanding of that text. It's not a big deal, but it is to me. Here's how my understanding of this text has changed. I used to think nothing could separate me from God's love the way nothing could pull a child from a mother's hug. That's fine. I have no problem with that picture. But I've come to see Paul offering a better one. I now think that because of my real union with Christ, nothing can separate me from God's love for the same reason nothing can separate the milk I pour in my tea from the tea after it's in there and I stir it. They're one. They're one. Christ is the tea. I am the milk. I am 
in Christ. You can't pull those things apart. You can't pull those things apart. It's a done deal. Inseparable. Next week, at night, we're going to study adoption in Christ. Let's pray.